everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talk and Pit. I am very excited today to have on Tim Sukumel. Um, his current role is Associate Professor in the Department of Human Movement Sciences at Curling University. He also has two director roles. Um, he does a lot there. Uh, director of Sport Physiology and Performance Coaching, and then also Director of Sport of the Sport Performance Institute. So Yes, he has a lot of responsibilities. He told me his business card. I don't know how he fits it all on there, but he's doing a lot. And uh, Tim, I'm so excited to have you on today. No, I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, without further ado, I definitely want to dive in. We have a lot of good things to cover today and a lot of different related topics. So let's get this thing rolling. Tim, can you tell us a little bit about, well, one, I just read off all your titles. So I'm curious of what these all mean. So a little bit about brief overview of your professional background, and then just any things that may not pop up on your resume that you do on a day-to-day that would be interesting to hear about. Yeah, sure. Um, so as, as you mentioned, associate professor at Carroll University. So I started at Carroll in the fall of 2017. Um, this is after one year at East Stroudsburg University following a completion of a PhD at East Tennessee State. Um, so here I primarily work within our graduate program of which I am the director of. So that's one of the directorships. Um, and the primary focus of that program, as you mentioned, sport physiology and performance coaching, uh, we really try to blend the, uh, the experiences that the individuals get. So, um, all of the students actually are coaching the entire time that they're there. So, um, we have a, you know, a 15 month track, which is accelerated. We have a two year track over which that they, um, they can have more coaching experience, more exposure to research, that type of thing. But, uh, yeah, we try to give them a combination of hands-on experience coaching in the weight room. Uh, we don't have a full-time strength coach here. So a lot of our students actually serve as the primary strength and conditioning staff, uh, assuming that they do get certified. Uh, and then they work within our human performance team, which includes, one of our associate ADs, uh, a couple of our sport coaches, and then obviously us, sports medicine. Um, now, of that, the students obviously design and implement the strength and conditioning programs, and uh, they usually send them over to me. Uh, we have a discussion about them before they actually go on the floor and they coach. On top of that, uh, part of my responsibility is actually going and watching them coach, um, giving them evaluations. They evaluate themselves. They evaluate each other. So it's a pretty robust um, model in terms of getting them as much coaching experience as possible before they go out um, to do an internship and then eventually into the field. The other side of that is the sports science side of it, where we actually test and monitor all the teams on campus. Um some teams more than others, as you can imagine, um, but this, we have a whole testing battery where we're doing things like body comp, jump testing, sprint testing, change direction, conditioning testing, upper body testing, you name it, we generally do it. Um, but then all this information eventually gets uh, put together in a report uh, for each of the coaches, as well as the individual athletes. Um, and the whole idea is, again, to keep driving their performance forward. So what are they good at? What are they lacking at? Um, and is our program working? So uh, if the athletes are not progressing, is it something on our end or is it something um, something else? So really, the progress regress tracking side of things is uh, actually part of the Sport Performance Institute. So it's all kind of blended 
altogether. Um, so the Sport Performance Institute itself is kind of an entity of the university. Um, and the teams then work within that as well as the students do. Um, lastly, the research side of things, obviously I still teach and am a faculty member. So uh, I have teaching responsibilities only in the graduate program right now. And uh, in addition, we try to get um, all the students exposure to sports science research. So that can be um, using the athlete monitoring data that we have, but also um, some various projects that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about in terms of um, you know, strength and power development, depending on what we're looking at. So we've done projects with weightlifting movements and derivatives. Um, we have several projects going on with accentuated eccentric loading right now. So all sorts of <laughs> anything strength power we're, or, we're, we're focused on, but uh, that in a nutshell is, is what we do. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things, but uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Awesome. That's great to hear. And, and I know just personally, whenever we're bringing in, whether it's like fellows um, or master's students or just up and coming um, SNC or sports science practitioners. We're always looking for um, some really good developmental systems like such as yours to, to grab people. And I think it's awesome to hear that you guys are taking the time or you're taking the time to give them responsibilities that are gonna prepare them for the next step. You know, cause we're always looking for whenever we're interviewing people, it's like, hey, have you had experience like having your own team coaching on the floor programming? And sometimes it's like a lot of, um, whether it's like developmental internships and whatever, it's like a lot of watching. And it's not actually like applying what you know and similar to what you're saying, like studying some of these different things and being able to kind of speak through your processes um, and not just like spoon feeding people as they. Yeah, and we we try to give them the whole the whole well-rounded experience where uh, part of the human performance meetings they actually put their programs up in front of each other and then they you know provide uh, constructive feedback when it yeah the give and take of it, but. Uh, my biggest thing as a faculty member of these individuals is to um, help them understand the why, you know, or, or why, you know, justify your program. Why are you choosing this exercise at this load at this time with this individual? And, you know, some people may call it pedantic, um, but at the same time, you know, if you're implementing something on the floor that you're not, that you can't justify and you can't tell me why you're doing it, why are you doing it then? Is there not another way? And of course, there's a lot of different ways to, to program, but um, providing the best training stimulus to each individual athlete based on their strengths and weaknesses is really what we're trying to do. Definitely. How many uh, teams do you guys have at, at Carroll by chance? I'm curious. <laughs> I actually haven't counted in a while, but I want to <laughs> say it's like 17, 18. We do have football. Um but awesome. we also have a couple teams that we don't work with currently. Um, like we have a bowling team here that we don't do any any work with currently. Um, men's and women's tennis, we don't do anything with currently. We have in the past, but um, men's and women's lacrosse, men's and women's soccer, basketball, baseball, softball, uh, volleyball. So yeah, we, we got a, a track and field, obviously. So yeah, we have probably anywhere between 450 and 500 athletes on a, on a yearly basis. Yeah. Yeah. And you're covering all those. That's, that's very impressive. And it's great that a lot of these um, students that you're bringing in are having the opportunity to program. Um, so that's awesome to hear. I'm always looking for different places to get a pipeline of uh, people for our our part-time position. So Tim, you're definitely one. <laughs> so. Well, if you, if you want to come and visit uh, just to check it out, you're more than welcome. 
Yes, yes. Maybe um, when it's warmer. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to go from cold weather to cold weather. So Classic maybe, yeah. Wisconsin or non-Wisconsinite <laughs> response. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe the summertime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, well, Tim, all things for me this last year have been really building out our sports science department. You know, I, I was able to hire in uh, Dr. Felix Prossel this past June, so almost one year having the department. Uh, a lot of really good things, a lot of things I had to learn, um, and a lot of things just really introducing the department to all our different head coaches, like we have 19 sports here. Um, so I think recently uh, I was reading through your article defining the sports scientist, just because it's a, an area that I'm super interested in right now, overseeing that department um, in the NSCA uh, SNC journal. But could you just provide clarification, kind of in your words of um, what is sports science, you know, just define it. And then we can dive into the weeds a little bit actually about that article as well. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the the introduction lecture that we get as grad students at uh, East Tennessee State is literally called What is Sports Science? Um, and it would be reviewed several times <laughs> during the times that we were there. But sports science to me in a, in a very brief definition is the study of sport. But more specifically, it's the use of biology, physiology, nutrition, biomechanics, et cetera, et cetera, all things focused on improving sport performance. Uh, the primary difference between uh, sports science and exercise science is one, sports science stemmed from exercise science, but two, um, sport, uh, sport science is focused on the actual performance of sport, whereas exercise science is really just focused on the effects of exercise stimuli on you know the physiological processes within the body. Um, so that that to me is the primary definition. Again, the study of sport, but then all the intricacies of it to help improve sport performance. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was interesting when we like introduced the department, you know, or even like when I was bringing in all the head coaches to interview for the position and just kind of getting their their hindsight twenty twenty of like, what are your expectations out of this role? You know, and really it was like varied across like all the different sports we have here of, of what the head coaches were looking for. So I thought that one was really interesting, you know, and then two, as I kind of hired the, the role in Felix got here, as we went into all the different offices and asking like, hey, really, what problems are you trying to solve? And it goes back to like, how are we going to improve performance? You know, because I think everyone just automatically their minds went to like recruiting and having the best technology and all the gadgets. And it's like, no, you're probably collecting a lot of things you don't even realize are objective, you know, like wrestling comes to mind with body weight, right? Like we're constantly measuring that over the last how many years for our guys. So like, that's something that we can even utilize that we're already collecting. That's super easy and not adding any like more leg work by any means, but, uh, yeah, yeah I, think no. it's, I think it's so, yeah. really using the the scientific process to study sports. So like you mentioned, to answer questions, it's, we may have, you know, how do we improve you know, this, how do we score more points? How do we score more runs? Not to say we're getting into like money ball territory or anything like that, but at the same time, it's using, you know, our scientific knowledge of all these different aspects to improve sport performance. Um, and the, the big thing that we, that was harped on during my doctoral work and what I try to get across to our students here as well is you need to have a justification again for everything that you're doing. So, you know, if you're going to train a, uh, you know, write up the conditioning program for a soccer team, you need to understand what that position all, you know, 
everyone's not going to be conditioned the exact same way. Your forwards are going to be conditioned a certain way. Your midfield is a certain way, defenders, keepers, et cetera. Um, but it's also understanding that despite a match being 90 minutes, it's not just a continuous run for 90 minutes at the, at a sub maximal intensity. So the need to expose them to max velocities, the need to uh, help them develop an actual capacity to be out there for that long period of time. So it's a mix and match of both, you know, lower intensity things for longer periods of time, but also higher intensity things and repeat efforts. So, um, you know, lactate tolerance is obviously going to uh, build in with that as well. And, you know, I would also argue, I, I ask this question to my undergrads all the time, is soccer a strength power sport or is it an endurance sport and those that you know just look at the time of the match they'll say endurance the problem is most of the decisive actions within the sport are strength power oriented so the ability this comes back to the ability to produce force maximally you know rapidly etc the ability to change direction sprint so all of those things um build into how we properly train uh, a sport, but also improve sport performance for that individual and ideally the team. Very well said, Tim. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's rock solid in the sense of, uh, I, I just really appreciate we're around so many like young professionals and then coaches and how everyone identifies it, you know, pertaining to their situation is a little bit different, but you have to respect it and um, apply where you see fit. So um, next question I have for you, I'm super curious, like really what sprung your interest to write this article with a great group of people that were all on the article? I'm really curious. And then or there'll be like a part two or, or what's to come kind of from the first part. I'm curious too. Yeah. So first, uh, first of all, shout out to Ben Gleason. Uh, he's the lead author on, on this paper. Um, and uh, he really led the charge uh, in terms of getting all these things together, as well as the viewpoints from all the people who are involved with this project. So there, by no means am I going to take credit for being head author on these. Ben drove this thing um, the best that he could. And, uh, you know, um, managing those people, as you can imagine, um, contrasting views here and here and there. So, but anyway, um, what spurred this on is this idea of, there was an article written a handful of years ago by Dr. Stone. I think, uh, both Meg and Bill Sands were on this as well. And it was actually called the downfall of sports science in the United States. Um, the, What's really interesting about that article is this idea that sports science as a whole is still in its infancy when it comes to the United States. Um, we understand or at least have a better understanding of what it is, um, but it's 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 kind of a give and take because the you know European nations, Australia, New Zealand, other places within the world, um, have had a bigger grasp on the data side of things in terms of what, you know, how to collect the data, what to do with the data. Whereas uh, in the U.S., I personally believe that we've spent more time developing the training program side of things to develop them, but we weren't ne necessarily measuring the performance or monitoring it a certain way. So now we're kind of flip-flopping and now we're spending more time um, collecting data and trying to make sense of it to uh, make it actionable. So 
that's kind of what spurred this on is this role of a sports scientist is now becoming, you know, a more mainstream job. Um, but again, we don't have a good definition of what it is because individuals of different backgrounds can be sports scientists. Um, Dr. Stone is frequently quoted as saying, um, a strength and conditioning coach, a good strength and conditioning coach should be a sports scientist. And the idea is that because the strength and conditioning coach spends so much time with the athletes, you are monitoring their progress on a daily basis within the weight room and during conditioning. Um, in addition, you're, you are likely using some tool one way or another to be able to test and or monitor their performance. So using that information should be a main driver in terms of how to program for each individual. So um, to kind of round this out, uh, as, you know, this needed to be put forward so that we could kind of develop a more common definition of what a sports scientist is with the understanding that sports scientists can come from different backgrounds. No, I think that's, that's really accurate. And I think about even when I was writing up our job description for director of sports science, how many eyes like within university of Pittsburgh kind of landed on, on the actual job description. Cause it was from like the academic side of the house at Pitt, the athletic side of the house, like, even our uh, data analytics kind of team got got a peek at it because I think every university has a different setup in regards to how they handle data. You know, maybe the IT department, someone from over there uh, on the athletic side of the house had a, had a peek at it because this person is going to be working with both sides, especially when it comes to like our expectations. Hey, let's win some grants. So like, who are you going to have to work with to go and get those grants? Are you going to be able to have those conversations? But then also on the athletic side of the house, you're going to have to work with, you know, all these different head sport coaches, head of sports med, nutrition, SNC. So really finding a little bit of a unicorn, you know, for a lot of these roles. And I think sometimes we undersell, like when we bring in this position or when we're interviewing I had a lot of different people like within the actual interview process on the panel, you know, meeting with this yeah. person. And, and so. because they're, because people are coming from all these different backgrounds, you know, realistically um, an engineer could be a sports scientist, a um, someone who runs data analytics could be a sports scientist. Um, you know, a strength and conditioning coach could be a sports scientist. You could make the, obviously make the argument that certain academics could be sports scientists, but the biggest commonality between all of them is they have to understand sport and kind of what goes into enhancing performance. So there's a common knowledge base because there are data analytics people out there that don't know the sport. They know how to collect data. They know how to visualize it. And they, you know, but even being able to communicate it with somebody, the soft skills, because uh, I talk about uh, this with my students is like, look, you can collect data. But when you deliver it, you have to be able to talk to an athlete about it, the coach, um, assistant coaches, possibly the AD. You should be able to communicate this effectively to every single person. Um, and I, unfortunately, not every single person, um, whether it's data analytics or, or whatever, is able to do that. Um, a lot of people can just use equipment and collect data, but then what do you do with it is kind of the next thing. So um, that's that's kind of my personal opinions on it. Um, I think all these people can be successful in these roles. It's just a matter of, um, you know, their experience and kind of exposure to everything. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, 
education is so big for the director of sports science role, you know, like how many times I have Felix get up in front of the volleyball team as we're preparing to go to a game and laying out kind of the schedule and when we should go to sleep and what should that look like, you know, like just their ability to communicate, like you said, to multiple parties is so important. And if they have that, that ability to do that, it's going to make them super successful, but they're a little bit fixated in one box, you know, and not able to be fluent with a lot of different people. It could be tough to be successful or like hire people around you as well in that role that can really balance you out if that's something that maybe like the soft skills you don't have. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting having conversations with different people like John Waggle, Clive Brewer, who I know was on this article, um, where people come from is they want, you know, I, I personally want input from all these individuals because ultimately we have the same common goal. The common goal is to win games, matches, you know, be successful. Um, everyone's going to have their specialties um, and we should all learn from each other. And that's, um, and I think sometimes, uh, especially when there's so many, um, so many different parties that are involved, it's very easy to fall back into our silos and just kind of work by ourselves rather than co uh, cohesively. Um, so I, that's that's a big thing for me is just making sure that the communication is there. Uh, we have three new head coaches right now. Um, so being able to have them understand or have conversations with them to understand, okay, this is what we've done in the past. Do you want something different? Um, you know, obviously having conversations about strength and conditioning programs, that type of thing. So being able to communicate, um, I think, is underrated, in my opinion, when it comes to sports science. No, definitely. And we've hired a couple of new head coaches here as well. And even getting the director of sports science on the interview panel with the head coaches off the rip. So they're already like meeting this role. Mm -hmm. We're kind of having those conversations. Like, have you had this role at your prior university? Kind of what testing and assessment have you done? With, like your new freshman coming in, just starting to have these conversations. So it's just like a normal piece to the performance group, I think is, has been really helpful, you know, and I think five years from now, you know, like everyone's just going to expect that person to be there. And some universities have the resources to have that role and, and some not so much. But I think even like with someone like yourself, academic wise, having these roles to be able to help make them knowledgeable and they can start to do that. And that's kind of similar to our, our sports science master's program. Like mm -hmm. we have Felix and he has all these master's students, clearly they're from the athletic or academic side of the house helping athletics. And it's kind of a win-win for both parties because they're getting the experience with these teams along with we're getting them to come in and kind of be the, the up and coming group. But I'm excited to really see where things are at in the future. And I think this goes well into my next question. And you, you talked about it a little bit, but uh, with the growth of sports science in the US, um, what are you really seeing done well um, at certain universities? I know you mentioned Waggle and he's in the ACC. So I definitely am always paying attention and he's a great practitioner, but as people are building out sports science departments, like what are some cornerstones to get head coach buy-in or administrative buy-in? Like what are some of your thoughts to see success within the department? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just involvement um, because we don't want them to feel like it's us working against them or vice versa, or that we're working for ourselves just to benefit ourselves. So one of the issues that we had, and you know, depending on who you talk to, you may still have uh, here at Carroll, is the viewpoint that I'm just collect date that uh, you know. Tim and his, um, you know, his performance institute, they're just collecting data so they can publish research and everything. And I try to make the point to them that we haven't published any 
research from our monitoring data since I've been here have not published a single piece. It's not because we don't want to, it's because we have other things that we're trying to focus on. But in addition to that, the primary purpose of monitoring is to give that information back to the coaches. It's like, we're collecting this for you to benefit your, your team's performance. Um, so again, I don't want people to, uh, to make it, you know, and again, this just comes down to conversations, but once people develop a certain bias and a viewpoint, it's sometimes difficult to get over that hump and, um, you know, have those conversations, but open communication and involvement, I think is, uh, the biggest cornerstone for success. Uh, number one, um, in addition to that, uh, I think the, the coach education piece, um, should be involved as well. But that co that goes both ways. I want to learn from the coach, and the uh, I hope that the coach wants to learn from us as well. So again, this comes down to um, just ha developing the relationship with the individuals. So that, in my opinion, should be the main cornerstone: is just developing those relationships and having an open line of communication um, to figure out what are the biggest issues that we face and how can we combat them together. Yeah, no, I think about that in the sense of a lot of universities are building out like sports science labs, you know, and, and sometimes like when you're thinking about planning it, it's like, hey, well, where are you going to have the lab in the new facility? Let's say like, how is it going to be set up? Is it going to be like a whole separate room? So then people enter and it almost feels like you're a lab rat or you're going to have like doors that slide open. So it's kind of yeah. just part of the training process, you know, all things to think about. And, and even to your point of like, do you want it to feel like a laboratory type setting where you're coming in and getting like tested and there's a bunch of students in there and professors taking notes? Cause like, like you're saying from a communication or perception, like someone may come in like a sport coach and kind of look in the room and be like, Oh, okay, this is interesting. But if it's more of an open fluent area, it doesn't make people feel a little bit more comfortable. There still are going to be things like a Dexa or a bod pod that need to be in a space that's like temperature controlled and things like that. But as this becomes more and more popular and people are building out, like some of these labs for the sports scientists, like where are you going to put it? Just the, like the athletic training room and nutrition from a yeah. flow standpoint, what's going to be most appropriate, you know, to have success. And I, and I know with our lab, um, we just moved this past summer. Um, and so we were in a completely separate building from athletics. Um, now there was a a basketball court that was attached to it. So you would have some of the teams over there that would do, you know, um, some, con whether it's conditioning sessions or, or whatever they were doing, um, over in that area. But now where we are, we're actually in the athletics building and we're on the coach's floor. So, um, mm -hmm. we're, we're on the second floor, the rest of the offices across the hall are all coaching offices. So I welcome all of the coaches and I tell all of them, it's like, look, if you have a recruit on campus, let me know. So I can, you know, so I can be here to kind of explain what we do. Um, because that creates the athlete buy-in before they're even there. Um, and the better part is if they're, um, if their parents are with them, they're like, wow, they really take care of their athletes here. And an obvious benefit that we have is we're at the D3 level. There aren't too many D3 schools that are doing what we're doing, um, at the level that we're doing it. So, uh, I like to kind of leave that as a, you know, a, a feather in our hat and especially kind of separates us from different programs but again, that comes down to communication. I won't be able to be there every single time, but maybe some of my students can be there. So it's uh, it's just keeping um, keeping the involvement with each other, really. No, definitely. 
I think, uh, so on the flip side of that, so we talked about things that we're doing well, you know, in the U.S. as we build these departments out, but where do you think we're like missing the mark or, or big areas for improvement in the U.S.? I'm curious. Um, it's, it's a benefit and it's, this is a double-edged sword. So there's benefits and limitations to it, but I think technology is a, um, it, it's a, it's a good benefit because it obviously gives us the ability to collect more information. But at the same time, um, I think we've fallen in love with technology and we forget to actually look at what's in front of us. So like uh, an example that we've had in the past is inexperienced individuals who are running, um, you know, jump testing on force plates. I will, they'll be looking at the computer screen, but they're not looking at the person when they actually do the test. So if we're doing a squat jump, like a static jump, they squat down to 90 degrees and then they jump afterwards, concentric or propulsive only. Um, there ends up being a counter movement on the actual test. So invalid test. But I asked the student, why is it invalid? Well, they they dipped or they dropped lower with their knees. I said, no, they didn't. It was their chest that fell. So you could, you know, again, you have that conversation. And the other thing too is, you know, when you need an athlete to stand still on a force plate, if you're not watching them, you can obviously have to look at the screen to see that you have some steady, but then you look at them before you actually give them a countdown and before they perform their jump. So technology is great when it works, but also when we're able to use it effectively with our coaching eyes for lack, for lack of a better term, um, we need to be able to understand what we're looking at. Um, you know, GPS is obviously huge right now, and uh, so is uh, velocity-based training. Um, so a couple things with, with GPS, depending on the company that you have, they may have fantastic explanations of what certain metrics are, um, and how they're calculated and everything, but there's other metrics. No one knows how they're calculated. They're just kind of there. And so, and we're, you know, we're just supposed to blindly follow some of these things. So again, you pick out the certain metrics that are important, um, and then you you stick with those. But once you start getting into some of the fluffy metrics, for lack of a better term, they're not really giving us um, or adding anything to our to our programs. Um, from the VBT standpoint, uh, and this is kind of another um, you know shortcoming I think we have. We've we we forget to coach. You know, we end up staring at a screen, and that we're staring at the screen and saying, "Okay, that velocity was higher. That velocity was lower. Okay, you reached your threshold. What do they look like?" That's what I want to know. Uh, like it it's becomes a mechanistic or sorry, a um, a result view rather or an outcome view rather than a mechanistic view. It's one thing to know what the value is, but guess what? Your technology is recording it. It's going to be there. You can look at it after the fact if you really want to. But at the same time, how did they achieve it? Because an issue with uh, with VBT is that we, we the benefit is that we get real time feedback. But what did they look like to achieve that uh, that actual outcome? Um, because athletes will just throw technique out the window sometimes just to achieve a faster velocity. Faster velocities are great when they're done mechanically well. Um, so just something to think about on, on that side of things. But, um, and we've kind of been talking about this as a, as another point where I think we're lacking, but, um, I think the education piece, we're still, uh, behind. I, I think there are more 
sports science type programs that are emerging throughout the throughout the states and everything. But um, coach education and student or future sports scientist uh, education is kind of what's lacking because students aren't necessarily exposed to the facets that they need to be exposed to. I think they should be able to coach and know what coaching is. They should understand the sport. They should be exposed to research. Um, but most of all, they actually need to get hands-on experience working with the athletes. Um, uh, another side of it is in their own training, they need to understand what a certain stimulus actually feels like. So I'll ask the students, have you ever done three sets of 10? And they'll be like, yeah, I've done that all the time. I'm like, okay, have you ever done 10 sets of three? And a lot of them are like, wait, that doesn't like, does not compute, right? You see that view in their head and it's like, that doesn't make any sense. And it's like, it does depending on what you're trying to train for. So, but until they understand what that actually feels like, they won't be able to prescribe it well. Um, and then they obviously have to dig into the research, uh, for the rationale for actually doing it. Um, educating themselves and reading. No one can ever read enough, in my opinion. Um, I'm guilty of it. Uh, and, and, you know, we kind of fall into our comfort zones after a while. But, um, you know, I'm working on a project right now where I'm reading about things that I haven't thought about in forever. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost relearning, but also um, educating yourself beyond and not being comfortable uh, with uh, just your bread and butter. No, a lot of good points <laughs> to go around. And yeah, VBT, I think about like back in the day when I had, like we had just gotten gym aware and then we had the Tendo and then we had like a bar sensei and we were like all as like, <laughs> GAs, like, okay, let's, let's see what we're seeing with this. But then also, yeah, to your point, I made a big note, but like outcome versus mechanism, you know, or mechanistic in a sense of, uh, should you really have like a freshman newcomer strapping on the Tendo or the gym aware when they don't even have found foundationally? really like the movement quality down just yet, you know, cause they're all competitors. So they're going to drive to get that number, but, but how they get that outcome uh, or how they drive to get that number. Yeah. Other things can fall apart. So I think, really and point. I think it, it comes down to a variety of types of testing. I mentioned, you know, force plates and, and, uh, and VBT or G GPS rather with force plates. Um, a lot of people look at the outcome metric of jump height. And I actually will question how important jump height actually is because if someone's fresh or if someone's tired, they could theoretically achieve the same jump height, but they're going to do it in different ways. So what we end up monitoring is, you know, propulsive forces as well as how long it took them to, to um, or how long they're producing those forces for. So it, you know, it comes down to impulse, you know, mean force and duration. But I want to know how someone achieved a jump height rather than just the jump height itself. The, the jump height itself is obviously important. But again, taking a, a mechanistic approach will also give us some insight into, you know, for lack of a better term, their neurological profile or um, how, how fit that individual may be at the time. Um, yeah, I, again, underpinning mechanisms I'll take uh, over outcomes really any day. Really good point. No, I think, uh, so you mentioned reading that you're, you're constantly reading that in the same way. Um, but I'm curious just from like a watch list standpoint or people that you really look at within the, the field of sports science, maybe three up and comers or three old heads that you're constantly kind of going back and reading their stuff to continue to push yourself forward. 
um, any names that you could mention? Yeah, I mean, uh, right now, a lot of the um, the, the the people who I always refer to as, as kind of my go-tos when it comes to sports science, John Wagle is one of them. Um, Sophia Nymphius, who's a really good friend of mine. I love her. And uh, Duncan French. Um, I think Duncan is certainly one of the best sports scientists in the world, in my opinion. Um, just his understanding of all facets of sports science, uh, as well as uh, the management and you know, collaboration with all different uh, departments is is phenomenal. Um, but uh, up and comers, um, I'm I'm a bit biased because uh, the uh, I know some of my some of the students that I have right now are going to go on and do really good things. Um, two of them are off doing uh, internships right now. Um, that's uh, Connor Cantwell and Adam Sund, uh, one with the Cincinnati Reds, one with the uh, so he's with Aaron Cunanan, and then uh, Adam Sund is with the Chicago Bears and AJ Lamb, who was with the Thunder previously. So, um, but another one actually just landed a position sports science with the New York Mets, and that's Cameron Kissick. So all three of those, um, from a sports science standpoint, I can see them going on and doing really good things, um, whether it becomes a, um, you know, a, a head sports science role or going on and doing PhD or anything later with that. Um, I know some of them are aspiring to do that, but, um, again, I'm biased, um, because I I've seen them work on a daily basis and, um, you know, uh, it's not to say that a lot other students that I've had aren't going on and doing great things. They are um, current students included, but uh, the fact that they're out doing or, or within the sports science world right now, um, whether it's internships or jobs, uh, I look forward to seeing what they do in the future. No, I could really like count count on both my hands, but um, the amount of phone calls that I get just like monthly about like, hey, do you know of anybody that is going to be a new up-and-comer for this position or that position? Because I think there's so many different roles popping up now in the field. Um, The field is growing so quickly, but really just trying to have kind of a good uh, collection of people to to reference to um, if they're not in- Add them to the list. (laughs) (laughs) Add them to the list always, but awesome, awesome. Well, to really close this thing out, Tim, I really want to hear, do you have any exciting projects coming up? Uh, Even like, I know we talked about the article earlier, kind of more parts along the way. Are you going to cover some other stuff? Could you even disclose that? Um, I can. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, I'll have a follow-up one after that. Yeah, so um, this first article, Defining a Sports Scientist, is really just part one of an actual uh, four-part article, again, being being led by Ben Gleason. So I can't disclose all the different parts right now, but things that will obviously be touched on, um, specialties and subspecialties of sports scientists, um, certain developmental pathways that can be involved with it as well. Um, but uh, what I do want to reference to everyone is that the uh, these articles are actually a part of a bigger project that is going to, that is a special issue in uh, the Strength and Conditioning Journal um, focused on sports science. So outside of my roles at the university, I serve a variety of roles within the NSCA. And currently I serve as the chair of the Sports Science and Performance Technology SIG. 
uh, special interest group. And this was one of our undertakings to uh, actually put forth a special issue focused on sports science to, um, to further the understanding of everything. Um, but uh, other things that we that we're trying to uh, there's 12 different pieces of this overall um, overall special issue. So other ones that will be touched on is kind of how to start a sports science program. And that's going to touch on things like um, the actual merging of athletics and academics, um, uh, other departments as well, selecting things like uh, key performance indicators for, uh, again, focusing kind of on the mechanistic side of things, um, building a framework for sports science at different institutions, but uh, in addition to that, we did want to touch on kind of how to implement sports science within an individual sport, a team sport, um, within, a within the tactical world. Um, but also to round this out, um, we wanted to, and actually one of the articles is published right now, um, it's focused on common issues and future research directions in sports science. So that's also ahead of print in, uh, in SCJ. Really what we focused on with that one was um, it was a roundtable discussion with, uh, I believe this one had five different experts. Um, anyone can go, go on and read that, but we talk about technology, um, literature, universities, like what are the, again, the common issues that are out there, where they would like to see sports science go in the future, what research um, is kind of under research or what topics are under researched. Uh, so a variety of things uh, touching on that. But the other round table that we're working on currently is um, kind of the state or viewed state of sports science around the world. So with that roundtable, we tried to gather a, a group of individuals that, um, that obviously represented different countries and also different regions throughout the world. So we had individuals from, um, you know, uh, the UK uh, or any, anywhere in Europe, uh, Australia, Asia. So there's a variety of, uh, or South America as well. So there's a variety of different people from around the world who certainly give a unique perspective. And the idea behind the article is really just to show, um, you know, again, the state of sports science, but the state of sports science can be so unique to the state or sorry, the country or region um, where I, you heard me say that the United States may be in the infancy of sports science still, but there's other countries that it hasn't even started um, uh, versus other countries that are very well developed um, or at least farther along than, than where we are. So um, that's one of the big projects um, that's going on. And actually as part of that SIG, uh, we're going to try to uh, promote a second special issue as well, more focused on the technology side of things, um, hot topics, force plates, VBT, communication of the data, a lot of the things that we talked about already. So kind of a nice tie-in. Thanks for that platform, Steph. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the other thing is we have um, aspirations of trying to provide kind of benchmarking data at different levels of um of the NCAA and or NAIA. So uh, if we're able to actually understand what is a good performance for this test at D1, D2, D3, being able to go and compare those, um, those different things. Um, and obviously we have a variety of projects on strength and power development. I'm not discounting those, but obviously for the 
focus of uh, of this podcast. You know, we're we're trying to really understand how to be able to implement um, accentuated eccentric loading with um, back squats as well as dumbbell jumps. Um, I'm working on a variety of projects with Chris Tabor right now, and uh, he's looking at kind of the tempo side of things. We're looking at flywheel. We're looking, so it's all sorts of things. Um, we know eccentric training works, um, but I would still argue that. We're so um, that's kind of the the whole venture behind this is being able to implement these things better. And since I have this platform right now, I will say if you're going to um, if you're going to NSCA this summer, um, I have a uh, I'll be speaking on um, a bridge the gap series. So I will um, I'll be speaking uh, or giving a lecture on kind of how to implement uh, eccentric training using variety of different methods. Um, that would be a lecture component, but then there'll be a hands-on component where we're going to be doing live testing. Um, so obviously be able to see force traces and things like that when we do um, different methods of uh, eccentric training as well. And uh, I really hope it provides a lot more clarity for what we actually think is going on. Um, differences obviously between tempo and flywheel and AEL. Um, yeah, it's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm excited about it and I really hope, uh, people attend. And, uh, so that's in July. And uh, like I said, no shortage of things going on stuff. Sam, I don't know when you sleep. I thought I'm doing a lot, but then you just, <laughs> this your title of being like three-time director. Uh, I'm like, oh man, I need to be tapping in and doing more. Well, but... and I, I don't want to belabor the point, but I'm writing a book right now too. So. <laughs> <laughs> just throw the cherry on top. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when, when, yes. when I, when I'm actually, yeah, when I'm actually awake, believe it or not, my sleep habits are a lot better than what they used to be. <laughs> That's awesome. I know my aura ring tells me different um, all the time. I'm like, oh man, this is not good. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I love the, I probably, the it hits home for the viewed state of sports science around the world. I was lucky enough to go to Rob Pacey's uh, conference, his sprint conference overseas in the UK and visit a few people, leads back to the course and some other teams and just asking some people questions that are from all over. Um, like, hey, you guys are possibly a little more forward um, with your thinking and even hearing more about like the physio's role within the performance team and how we're set up in the States is a little bit different with ATs and PTs and mm -hmm. even how the sports science may help a little bit more when it comes to like reconditioning or late stage return to play. I think it's really interesting just trying to learn from everybody, you know, yeah. and absorb it all and, and figure out what fits our maker model at whatever university, like you're saying, D1, D2, D3 is super interesting so yeah, I'll, I'll be oh contacting God. you if, if certain things go through stuff <laughs> yes that would be great that'd be great yeah I need to clearly step my game up I'm not doing enough right now I feel like I'm a slacker so you're doing you know. plenty and I think we're all still jealous <laughs> <laughs> no way but uh Tim man okay well yeah NSCA if you guys are there in July make sure you guys go and see Tim I sadly can't be there but I have people going, so I have to train my teams. That's important. I'm going <laughs> to hold that against you, though. I, I know, I know. Awesome, awesome. Well, Tim, um, last question I have for you, because I'm super curious now, especially after you just answered that last question. Um, I'm a passionate, lifelong learner, and so are you. But uh, any resources that you would recommend currently, whether it's podcasts, books, anything you're diving into that you would recommend? for anybody to read or listen to? 
other yeah. than this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this podcast, you know, uh, that, that should be, that should be a given, right? Um, no, I, I think, uh, again, I'm, I'm in a variety of different textbooks and whatnot right now, but, uh, I would I would argue and strongly encourage anyone uh, a couple names that I mentioned before, um, making sure you read stuff from Duncan French, Sophia Nymphius, John Wagle. Um, obviously, you cannot go wrong with the with the classic work of um, Mike Stone, Bill Kramer. Um, those individuals obviously laid the foundation for a lot of us. Um, and honestly, one of the best sports scientists, again, if you go to NSCA, he's going to be there. Um, uh, Bill Sands is actually going to be giving a talk as well. And, um, he will certainly forever with me go down as one of the smartest individuals I've ever known. Um, so I, uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with him as well. So, um, but those individuals, um, really laid the foundation Inigo Mexica is another one um, who's out there. Um, you cannot go wrong with these individuals in terms of what they've provided to the, the sports science world. You may have to bring the pit volleyball team with me. <laughs> we, there you go. They can be your, uh, <laughs> your demo people um, for the training portion, Tim. No, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, all those names, as I scribbled them all down and some are just legends, I draw a, a slight gift beside them, but um, yes, thank you so much for sharing and yeah, people dive in, read as much as you can. Um, all right. Yeah. I mean, read, listen, wh- whatever you, whatever you need to do, you know, I, like I, like I had mentioned, I, with any of those names, you can't go wrong, but there's so many different podcasts and everything out there. I know Rob Pacey does a great podcast. Um, this is obviously a great podcast when it comes to um, just providing resources and names uh, for individuals. The NSCA coaching podcast is always a good one with, uh, with Eric McMahon, previously Scott Caulfield. Um, you know, a- any of those resources I think would be incredibly valuable and there, there's a variety out there. So, um, trust me, you'll be, you will never be able to fit in every single podcast, but, uh, all, you know, there are quite a few that are, that are very worth it. Definitely Tim. All right. I swear this question and one more, <laughs> uh, this one should be pretty easy for you, but, uh, top three mentors who have you learned a ton from been a sponge who's really molded you into the professional you are today only three <laughs> um, <laughs> i know i know I'm yeah i mean i could go on and on with this but uh probably one who's had the most influence over me is uh dr mike stone um being able to spend three years uh under him honestly wasn't enough time um you know every single time i see him at a at a conference it's always uh it's always a fantastic thing he and his his wife meg um, obviously, you know, Meg is, uh, an outstanding individual in her, in her own right and has her own, uh, legendary story as well. So talk about a, a power tag team when it comes to those individuals, but, um, other individuals who I, um, continue to learn from on a regular basis are, um, uh, Sophia Nymphius, um, again, love her to death. Um, just a, just a different level of thinking. Um, you know, we'll catch up from time to time and she'll mention something that I'll write down. I was like, God, I haven't even thought about that. Like how, you know, how does your brain function? Right. Um, but asking questions that aren't necessarily, you know, 
that challenge old beliefs um, without actually getting too far out there. You know, it's, it's great to, it's great to think in theory um, sometimes because it helps you kind of challenge old, um, not old, but uh, previous methods. Um, as I mentioned, Bill Sands um, had a big influence on me, but I will say that one of my mentors, he recently retired um, Dr. Bill Eben, um, and for a long, for a really long time was probably the most prolific publishing, uh, person within the strength and conditioning world. Um, he was one that really got me started, uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, strength and conditioning and sports science research at the time I wanted to be, uh, with undergrad, I wanted to be a coach. Um, and, I still went on to do some coaching and everything afterwards, but he really turned me on to the idea that a, a greater understanding from the research side of things helps you shape how you coach, but also um, being able to communicate that information as well. It, uh, from a sports science standpoint, being able to understand the research process and how you would answer questions a certain way Um I know that I've already named four, but I could name so many more um, from uh, from people who have influenced me. I, uh, you know, just women alone. I, I, you know, on International Women's Day, I actually put out a, a list of fifty women who've uh, who've influenced me. Um, and you know, there, there's fifty men, there's fifty women, and I'm, there's way more than that. You know, um, Steph, you are one of those people. Um, and uh, you know, being able to communicate. And, you know, I, I joke, you know, for those listening, I joked with Steph, I was like, I need your number so I can bother you. Um, because when it comes to like questions that I have and things that you've experienced versus I've experienced, you know, being able to communicate uh, on a regular basis. And I'm going to be honest um, and say, there's nothing wrong with a phone call. Everyone loves to text, but there's nothing wrong with a phone call. You know, Steph and I may have a, a quick question for each other, but then we'll talk for 45 minutes. Um, and frankly, you probably get more out of those conversations than trying to type out a text message. So don't be afraid to actually call somebody. Communication is important. Yeah. That's when right. I was in the state of Wisconsin <laughs> for, the, for uh, the NCAA tournament, I was like, man, I'm at a coffee shop. This is perfect. Got to catch up with Tim. And yeah, I may have the gift of gab. So if people call me, it's probably not going to be five or 10 minutes. Be so. able to span it, like have a, have a, have a, a, a buffer period. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, um, Tim, I thought that was awesome. And I think uh, anytime people put out like lists, you know, it just gives like, even I was looking at the list, I'm like, all right, more resources of people that I can reach out to, like you're saying, and, and ask questions. And I mean, I hope people can call me and learn from my mistakes half the time of like, hey, if I could go back and do it again, I'd probably do it this way. And, um, but yeah, love honest people that you can trust. And yeah, they'll shoot you straight or I, I mean, there's a there's a right way and a wrong way to obviously use social media. I'm fortunate enough to be able to have met a ton of different people um, through Twitter. You know, and it's not Twitter and Twitter obviously is like, you know, the wild, wild west when it comes to strength and conditioning, because there's so much stuff and controversy out there. But I've that's I've I met Sophia Nymphius that way. I met Paul Comfort that way, um, who I'm still in uh, very tight with. And believe it or not, the relationships you develop that way can um, can certainly develop into something else. Paul and Sophia were in my wedding. So, 
Uh, and so uh, be, uh, being able to uh, maintain those relationships, but also seeing what they become is also um, is also equally as rewarding, if not more. Definitely. When I went to Rob's conference over in the UK, some of the people that I was able to just like communicate with via through Twitter, Instagram, and then you finally meet them in person. It's like, oh man, they look at me like, well, I'm like, yes, I'm very short. Maybe you thought I was taller. I don't know. but um. I get that question too, or, or the statement. <laughs> I thought you'd be taller. Um, yes, you know, I'm I'm 5'6", but apparently people think I'm 6'5". Um, yeah. But anyway. You're taller um, than me, I, so. <laughs> the other thing, I mean, the other thing I would encourage uh, individuals that are, that are listening, and, you know, I mentioned the NSCA conference. Obviously, there's other great conferences out there. Uh, the CSCCA conference, um, uh, Australian Strength and Conditioning Conference is one of the best conferences I've ever been to um, previously. Um, and there's a variety that are out there. But what I will tell people is despite the option of um, you have the ability to attend virtually, and I understand that it certainly can be expensive to, to travel and things like that. But if you have the opportunity, I would highly encourage anyone to go, physically go to these conferences because all the people that you want to talk to, they're there. Like it's in, you know, I, I joke about this, but I actually give my grad students a scavenger hunt of people. You know, this, this, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to name the names right now because otherwise they're going to just start hiding if they listen to this, but there's a, you know, I up right up here, Steph. Um, but there's a That's list good. of people that uh, again, it's not who, you know, it's who knows you. So being able to make a favorable impression as as you mentioned, Steph, like when people get their names out there and everything, it kind of, you know, and they introduce themselves and make a good impression you're like, oh, yeah, I know someone who could do this role or whatever. I'm going to make sure that I contact them. So giving yourself that opportunity, leaving no stone unturned um, is just making sure that you set yourself up for success. Um, but again, you can't do that unless you actually put yourself out there. No, definitely. I mean, I, I think about like back in the day when I was trying to get into the field and the amount of people that I reached out to, and you remember like the certain people that got back to you, like within 24 yes, hours. And 100%. I'm like, man, if I can get to that situation at some point, and like, I have younger professionals reaching out to me, like, I'm going to make sure I respond, you know, because I remember when I was on the opposite side and, mm -hmm. and paying it back. So I like it, the scavenger hunt, we're getting ready to go to a conference here in May. So maybe uh, my fellow, I'll put her up to that. But yeah, I won't list up names right yeah. now. Because yep, I, yeah. I know, I know there's certain people that if they listen to this, they will, they'll be like, I'm going to do everything in my power not to, not we'll to see these people. Curtains, like, hiding by the window. Like I know. Well, <laughs> it's, it's kind of the culminating experience for our students at Carroll is we're able, we're fortunate enough to be able to use things like their course fees to actually have them attend conferences like this. And fortunately, all the ones that will be attending this year will also be presenting a research project as well. So um, again, they're getting the full experience and um, you know, the ones that we've done this in the past is I think is the third class that has been able to do something like this. Um, it, it's invaluable because you, they meet so many people. There's obviously ample opportunities to learn, but I also encourage people. It's like, don't try to go to something at every single hour. Cause if you do, you'll be burnt out by the end of the first day. Um, 
frankly, there's been conferences I've gone to. I've been to one talk and it's not because I didn't want to go to other ones. It's because you end up meeting and talking with people and being able to learn more from those conversations than sometimes you learn from the actual talks you go to. No, definitely. It's uh, it's interesting, like some of the relationships you've built over time. It's like maybe we were at dinner or like a social mm-hmm. of some sort for like catapult, you know, or or whatever else. And yeah, Eric Manson did such a good job with the NSCA conferences. He's he's a stud. And it's a lot of work to put those conferences on. I put on very small scale conferences and I'm like, oh my God, you're pulling your hair out. Uh, so the fact that they can pull off such a, a great conference the NSCA um, multiple times a year is very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I credit anyone who's ever put together a conference. I've, I've done several obviously, and um, it, it's a, it's a ton of work. Um, and we just want to make sure that we give everyone the best experience possible, but yeah. Um, anyone who's doing that, you know, kudos to you because it's not an easy thing. No. Yeah. I know uh, even Waggle, you spoke about Waggle, but they're putting on the, the Notre Dame performance summit, or I may be saying that name wrong, but it's coming up in the summer. So if you guys haven't checked that out, definitely yeah. check it out too. It's a good I wanna, one. I think that one's in June if I'm, yeah, I think it's in yeah, June. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's sometime in June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I try to eye up and I try to like divide and conquer my staff of like where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone can bring back the information and some people's schedules, like it makes more sense for and, and all that. So yeah, I'm super excited depending on teams they're working with in postseason. So cool. Well, Tim, that's all I have for you. Uh, Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the best way to contact you, Tim? Oh, um, sure. Always add your email within the bio of the, the episode, of course, but any other ways, social media or anything like that? Yeah, so- social media, if you want, if people want to contact me, it's the same handle for Twitter and Instagram, which is Dr. T. Sukamel. Um, and then, uh, I believe on my, uh, my Twitter bio there, there's a link to our research gate page that has links to, uh, to all of our research and whatnot. And obviously, um, if you're having difficulty finding any of our, our work, uh, or have questions, feel free to email me, um, just to let, let everyone know school emails are school emails. So, you know, they, they all kind of funnel to the same place, but, uh, Yeah. I, I appreciate the opportunity, Steph. Awesome, awesome. Thanks, Tim, so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, I hope you st- everyone took a lot of notes because I did. <laughs> but uh, thanks, Tim, so much. And uh, make sure you guys reach out and read some articles. And uh, hail to Pitt, I always say. <laughs> <laughs>